The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the panorama of history that you have provided for us that we might be able to to see that you are the God who controls history. Despite the chaos, despite the wars, the rumors of war, the threats of terrorism that we wake up to every day on the daily news, we know that you are a God in control and that you are the one who has a wall of fire around each of us and around this nation. Father, now as we study your word, pray that we might be encouraged by the things that we're studying and I'm ready to take these things in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, once again, I'm going to give this Bible a try. I've been uh, using this a lot in study, the Nelson Study Bible, and I really like it. I like the notes. But I don't know why it is that when um, certain editors do certain things and they decide on typefaces and font faces and things of that nature, that they decide to use the tiniest numbers possible and the lightest font face possible to indicate where each verse is. And so uh, I've had trouble in the past trying to figure this out. Maybe since I've been looking at it enough now, I've gotten used to it, I'm going to try to actually use it from the pulpit. The last time I tried this, I never could find any of the verses I was looking for. And uh, we'll give it one more shot. Open your Bibles with me. To Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Just by way of review, at the end of the last session, conclusion of Daniel 9, we finished Daniel's third vision, the third revelation given to Daniel. And that took place in the first year of Darius, which is also the first year of Cyrus. Now we're going to emphasize the distinction here in verse 1. And we looked at the outline of this great panorama of history. Now, the reason we're going back to this is that Daniel is given this vision in about uh, 538 B.C. The vision that he's given in Daniel 10 does not come for two more two years, and so he has two years to think and to meditate on the significance of what was revealed to him in chapter 9. There we saw that God gave a timetable, a clock, for the history of Israel, and that clock was to start with a decree for to restore the city, to restore it in terms of plaza and moat, which refers to both its economic as well as military defensive structure, and that from the date of that decree, which would start the time clock, from the date of that decree to the coming of Messiah the Prince, 69 weeks would go by. And we studied that, and we saw that that was equivalent to 173,880 days. And that when you work out that uh, time clock 
It began on March 5th, 444 B.C., which is a date that's fairly certain. There's always a little caveat here that if our understanding of the calendar system is off, then that throws everything off. But at this stage, I think there's a fair degree of certainty that Artaxerxes' decree was on the 5th of March, 444 B.C., and 173,880 days later is March 30th, A.D. 33, the day Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. It is after that, according to the text, that Messiah the Prince is cut off, and then the city and the sanctuary are destroyed. So that indicates that there's a clear interval between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 70th week begins when the coming prince, the Antichrist, signs a peace treaty with Israel. It is the last week or a seven-year period divided into two segments, a half a week each or three and a half years and three and a half years. Messiah returns at the end of that period, ending the the, uh, plan for Israel. Both segments have to do with Israel and not the church, which is one reason why We believe the church must be removed before the tribulation begins. And again, I remind you that it is not the rapture that begins the tribulation. It is the peace treaty that the Antichrist signs with Israel that starts that prophetic time clock uh, going again. Well, Daniel has been reflecting upon this, and, and it's had a lot of impact on his thinking. And now two years later, we come to the beginning of chapter 10. Now, here we're going to see that after three weeks of prayer concerning the difficulties that that are facing the Jews who've returned to the land, see, between Daniel 9 and Daniel 10, Cyrus gave his first decree in 538 B.C., just about the time, or very close to the time, that Daniel had the vision in Daniel 9. Cyrus gave a decree to, for the first people to return to the land, and they've gone back, but they're they're having problems. They're running into opposition from some of the inhabitants of the land. They're not getting enough uh, military support, economic support, and so they're in a, in a, they're having numerous problems uh, establishing themselves back in the land. And as Daniel gets reports on that, he's extremely concerned and and discouraged, and he's trying to relate what he has heard from. God, because if you were Daniel, put yourself in Daniel's place. He's been told that there's a decree to, from the coming of this decree until Messiah, there's going to be uh, 69 years. And now there's this decree from Cyrus for people to go back to the land. It would be easy for Daniel to assume that that's the right decree. He would not know. There's no indication that he was given additional revelation identifying which decree it was until we come to Daniel 10.1. So there's a level of un, uncertainty in Daniel's understanding of how these, these, uh, all these factors come together. So we read in verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message, that is a word, was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So at this time, he is given additional revelation, and it is one that is overwhelming. It is one that is not what he expected in light of what he had already uh, understood from the previous revelation. 
It is one, the text says, of great conflict. And the Hebrew there for conflict is the word uh, tzavah, which is the root noun of the ver- I mean, the noun that we use, sabaoth, when we sing uh, uh, a mighty fortress is our God. It refers to the Lord's sabaoth. And as I have pointed out many times, that's not Sabbath. That is the Hebrew word sabaoth, which means armies. And so the root word sabah refers to conflict. It refers to military conflict and war. And so the vision that Daniel gets, this final fourth vision, that actually is covered in three chapters. It begins in Daniel 10, goes to the end of the book. This is the last vision in the book. This is what everything has been heading to is this final detailed vision that is not given in symbols. That's one thing we'll note here is it's not in symbols. Remember in Daniel uh, 7, you had the symbols of the animals, and you had animals again in Daniel 8, but there's no animals here, and it covers basically the same information, but in a lot more detail of what Daniel covered in Daniel 8. You remember, for those of you who uh, are not all that enchanted with history, that we spent a good deal of time in Daniel chapter 8 going through the history of the Seleucid Empire. One of the reasons we did that is because I knew that when we got to Daniel 10, 11, and 12, the Holy Spirit goes into enormous detail about what will happen during the time period of the Seleucid Empire. So it's a matter of inculcation or repetition and inculcation for you to get that initial overview of the history of the Seleucid Empire, and then to be able to come back and look at it a second time in Daniel 10 and 11 and 12, because that becomes a type of the tribulation, as Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist. So in Daniel 10, 11, and 12, we see that, that there is one unit here. This is this one unit is the climax of the book of Daniel. Now, you might think the way Daniel is normally taught by a lot of people, that the vision at the end of Daniel 9 is the climax because it's such a pivotal prophecy and so important. But the climax of the book is God is revealing it to Daniel in relationship to his plan for Israel. The the is the climax is these la, is contained in these last three chapters. It is a a report from heaven on exactly what will take place in Israel's future. And it is not a pleasant look. It is a, as verse 1 indicates, it's a message of tremendous warfare. And so as Daniel sees this, rather than anticipating the coming of Messiah, anticipating a rebirth perhaps of the glories of the, of the, uh, kingdom of Israel as it was under under Josiah or even further back under David and Solomon, Daniel is faced with a vision that indicates that their future is going to be one of uh, of horrible suffering, of, of warfare, of, of violence throughout the land, and it leaves him overwhelmed. We read in this verse that uh, the message is, is true, it's one of great conflict, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Now, the word translated "understood" in the Hebrew is the is the uh, 
word being in the Hebrew. And being, I always remember this from, from studying Hebrew, you have to learn all kinds of little, use all kinds of mnemonic devices to remind, remember things. Being means between. It has to do with discernment and making a decision between two options. So it's not simply understanding. It has to do with discerning issues and being able to apply doctrine in the process of decision-making. So this goes far beyond an academic comprehension of the message. It indicates that Daniel uh, is able to apply the message or the apply the meaning of the message to his philosophy of history. As we get into this section, or into chapter 10 through 12, there's two things that are important here. First, they give us as believers a framework for understanding history. So one of the problems that, that we often face when we go to modern history classes is we're just faced with a, a, a plethora of detail, and nothing seems to orient or, or bring those details together. Nothing seems to tie all of the detail together because very rarely do our history teachers have a coherent philosophy of history, and if they do, it's usually on the order of some sort of Marxist or Hegelian uh, type of view of history that it or, or Darwinian it's just a matter of time and chance as one thing happens after another and as Henry Ford once commented history is just one damn thing after another now that's a view a lot of people have of history but history is God's story it is the outworking of God's plan and purposes for mankind and as we look at this chapter we can see get an understanding and a framework so that when we look at history it, we can put those pieces together, and they're not just random events and facts hanging out there uh, unassociated with anything else, but they have meaning and value because they're in God's God's plan. Second thing that we're going to see more of next time than this time, and that is the role of angels. I think more than any other book in the Old Testament, Daniel tells us about angels. There's a tremendous amount of angelology here, and Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 10, uh, indicates some information about the fact that there are demons as well as elect angels associated with the leadership of most national entities and empires. Now, I will save it to next time, but this doctrine that's contained in this passage has been uh, exploited and distorted and magnified into uh, an entire category of doctrine today among charismatics that is has introduced a whole new realm of vocabulary in many churches. And it's interesting. I've heard people use this vocabulary who who don't know a thing about the charismatic simply because somehow they heard somebody use this vocabulary and they just sort of picked it up. And it's amazing that, that the greatest lies in history are lies that are built on 90% truth and not lies that are built on 90% error. And so the distortion of this passage has led to some uh, tremendous heresy in the realm of angelology and demonology in a contemporary time. So we'll get into that next time. Now, the purpose for this vision is given in verse 14. Now, I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. By the time we get down to verse 14, there is a second personage who shows up on the scene, and this is an angel. And this angel, probably Gabriel, is this angel's unnamed, but it has been Gabriel throughout this 
this uh, book that has been revealing and interpreting the visions for Daniel. So this is probably uh, Gabriel speaking here. And there are three things we see in this verse. First of all, the prophecy in chapters 10 through 12 applies specifically and directly to the Jews, Daniel's people. They are for your people. So this does not apply to the church, does not apply directly to the church age, but it again will be an indication that God has a plan and purpose for Israel. That has an application today in that uh, we must recognize that the return of Jews to the land today, while they're not saved, it's not a regenerate nation, it's not a nation that is concerned about spiritual things. It is nevertheless, as I, we saw last time, part of God's plan and purpose is to restore uh, Israel as an unregenerate nation before the tribulation can begin. And so any any thinking that is anti-Israel is also anti-Semitic, and there's no place for anti-Semitism or anti-Israel thought among Bible-believing Christians. This is one of the problems that uh, historically with what is known as uh, replacement theology. Now, replacement theology is not the same as covenant theology. We've gone through replacement theology here in the past, and it is the all of the theological systems, except for dispensationalism, all of the theological systems that think that the church replaced Israel in God's plan. So that's Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Wesleyanism, Methodism, Episcopal Church, uh, Congregational Churches, uh, many Baptist churches have uh, forms of replacement theology. The only people who are consistently dispensational reject replacement theology. So that means that in a system of replacement theology where the church replaces Israel, These folks no longer see a spiritual significance to Israel. Israel is no longer the apple of God's eye. Israel is no longer in that privileged position of blessing or will no longer return to that spiritual place or that special place of blessing. And so they really don't have a basis theologically for rejecting anti-Semitism. In fact, historically, replacement theology has always, rightly or wrongly, been sort of a seedbed for anti-Semitism. The, one of the greatest anti-Semitic institutions in the history of mankind is the Roman Catholic Church. And that is because of their, they have completely bought into replacement theology. So we have to be very attuned to that and recognize that as evangelical believers who hold to dispensationalism and a distinction between Israel and the church, that we believe there is a future. God does have a future plan for Israel, and we are to be supportive of Israel. That does not mean that we necessarily agree with every political decision, every military decision that Israel makes. That's not what it means to be pro-Israel. But it does mean that we recognize that uh, the ultimate goal of the uh, Arab terrorists, the ultimate goal of the Arab nations, is to destroy Israel. They've stated that time and time and time again in, in their own language. If we had uh, reporters with integrity, they would be broadcasting that on the evening news. But since we have few reporters in the media with any kind of integrity, it never seems to uh, make the news. Verse 1, we read that the the date is somehow significant. 
we saw in previous studies that in Daniel chapter 7, the first vision took place in the first year of Belshazzar. The second vision in chapter 8 took place in the third year of Belshazzar. Then the number of years went by, about 11 years. And in the first year of Darius, the third vision comes. And now in the third year of Cyrus. Now the third year of Cyrus is the same as the third year of Darius. Darius is the median nephew of of Cyrus, who was set to rule over Babylon. It was Darius who was in charge of the the old Babylonian Empire, and he was the one responsible for sending Daniel to the lion's den. But one theory is that between chapter 9, between 538 B.C. and 536 B.C., Darius died. Another view is that the reason... Daniel is emphasizing Cyrus here rather than Darius. It's not that Darius is no longer uh, ruling over the old Babylonian empire under Cyrus, but that Cyrus is the one who was named by Isaiah as God's anointed, who would be used by God to bring the Jews back from captivity, back to their land. And so by saying in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Daniel is emphasizing this connection that this is the Cyrus. He's reminding his Jewish readers that this is the Cyrus of whom God had spoken that would send uh, the Jews back to the land. It's always important that when God puts a historical notice in Scripture that we pay attention to it and see if we can discover uh, why that notice is there. God is God the Holy Spirit is economic with his use of words and doesn't just put stuff there uh, just to uh, just to randomly give information. It always has some significance. So we need to look at, pay a little more attention to this, and he states clearly that this is the third year, not the second or the fourth year, but the third year of Cyrus. This means that perhaps we should look at other passages of Scripture following the time-honored principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture and correlate Daniel 10.1 with other passages of Scripture to discover what was going on in that third year of Cyrus, which is 536 B.C. What was troubling Daniel and other believers and other Jews in that particular year? Well, to find out what happened, we need to turn to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra is a book that was written during the third year of Cyrus, at least portions of it, because Ezra was one of the leaders of the Jews that returned to the land as a result of Cyrus's decree in 538 B.C. Ezra was a priest as was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the, excuse me, Ezra was a priest. Zerubbabel was a descendant of royalty, although he was not a king. He was the political leader. So we usually speak of this time period as the time period of Ezra and Zerubbabel. Ezra being the priest, Zerubbabel being the political leader. So in Ezra 1.1 we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that was 538 B.C., in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... Now, just a little note for those of you who are here Sunday morning in our First Corinthians series. 
Now and then you will recognize that there is a controversy, and that controversy is based on what I've been teaching on Sunday morning. That is that we have a human spirit, that we are born spiritually dead without a human spirit, according to Jude 19, not having a spirit. And yet, someone will go to a passage like this, and there are passages in Genesis and Exodus to talk about the spirit of Pharaoh and say, well, well, here's a use. So obviously, Cyrus was an unbeliever. Pharaoh was an unbeliever, yet the Bible says they have a spirit. Well, you have to recognize that there are about eight or ten different uses of the word spirit in the Bible, and this is just the generic word referring to the thinking of the individual. And as I pointed out, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, spirit is used there to refer, when it talks about the, who knows what's in a man except the spirit of a man, it's talking about that innermost part of the thinking of a man. So the Lord stirred up the spirit, that is the thinking of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, there seems to be an indication here that perhaps Cyrus is a believer because of his recognition of Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the God of heaven. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So he recognizes the significance of Isaiah's prophecy that he was to be appointed or anointed by God to send the Jews back to rebuild the temple. So it's very possible based on this verse alone, not the verses in Isaiah, because you don't have to be a believer to be appointed by God. But it's very possible based on this verse alone that Cyrus was a believer, but you can't be dogmatic about that. Verse 3, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. The reason you can't be real dogmatic is that his terminology towards the end of the decree is still the, the terminology of a pagan talking about a regional territorial God. So while he sounds like he might be a believer at the beginning, he doesn't sound like it at the end, so we can't be too certain about his uh, spiritual status. So in Cyrus' first year, which is 538 B.C., he issues a decree for the Jews to return to the land of Israel. So in Daniel 10.1, we're talking about the third year of Cyrus, which is two years later. The way they counted the years, the first year would be 538, the second year would be 537, the third year would be 536. We're in B.C. times, so we're going backwards. So it's 536 B.C. when this takes place, so people would have already been returning to the land. Now, Daniel did not return to the land because at this time Daniel's a bit old. He is a golden in his golden years. He is a senior senior because he is at least 85 years of age. He might even be as ripe as 90. Remember, the Scripture talks about living to a ripe old age. That was not a slang term. So he would, he did, and he maintained most of his mental faculties. If you don't know it, by the time you're 75, uh, 
50% of you, no, by the time you're 75, 10% of you will have Alzheimer's. By the time you're 85, 50% of you will have Alzheimer's. The rest of you won't remember because you'll just have regular old senility. Except for Dave back there, he just keeps right on rocket and nothing bothers him. Then we come to Daniel, Daniel, I mean, excuse me, Ezra 3. Verse 1, now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So here we see that the Jews in the land during their first year of regathering to Israel, and they meet to Jerusalem in order to be challenged by the word of God from Ezra. In verse 8 of that chapter we read, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Notice they're building the temple, not the plaza and moat that Daniel talked about in that and the prophecy in Daniel 9. So in the second year, they're back in the land, pioneers recolonizing the land that God had given them. But Nehemiah points out that they still had problems with sort of a uh, an early uh, proto-Palestinian people. They aren't related to the Palestinians by any means. But whenever the Jews go back to the land, whoever happens to be living there really puts up a fuss and puts up a lot of ter- uh, terrorizing activity in order to prevent them from returning. Then in chapter 4, there are even more events recorded about the problems that the uh, that those returning to the land had. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, notice the similarity to with today. See, nobody who's in the land that's not Jewish wants a temple there. The ancient inhabitants who were resettled there by the Assyrians and the Chaldeans didn't want it. And the modern Arabs that lived there, who are called Palestinians by a misnomer, uh, don't want it. Because ultimately what energizes their opposition is Satan. Satan does not want the presence of God in Israel. He didn't want it then because he was thwarting the plan of God, and he doesn't want it now because he doesn't want the tribulation to begin. So he is preventing these things, trying to hold off and stop God's plan. But the message we see in all of this is that God controls history, and Satan can't stop it. In verse 2, we read that they, that is, these who oppose the Jews, approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God. See, see, their attempt is to work alongside in order to sabotage, in order to keep them from being able to complete the temple. Now, if you don't know it, where does the word sabotage come from? Sabotage comes from the uh, from a Dutch word, sabot, which has to do with a shoe, because back around the end of the 19th century, a bunch of shoe workers went on strike and they took their shoes off, our factory workers went on strike, took their shoes off, and threw them into the industrial works to stop the machines. So they were called saboteurs. That's where that word comes. Just a little extra insight, trivia, 
something you can uh, show off with over the weekend or something. So these early saboteurs want to uh, infiltrate the ranks and to stop in order to stop the construction of the temple. So they ask, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we've been, they're so sanctimonious. Notice the enemies of God always want to use God's name in order to justify their cause. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esau, Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have Nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So even in the Old Testament, we see this doctrine of religious exclusivism, that Israel is held exclusively to God, and there's really only one way to worship God, and that's according to the way he has described it in his word. But these uh, saboteurs, these opposers, I filed various lawsuits with Cyrus back in, back in Babylon in order to prevent the rebuilding of the city according to the rest of the chapter down through uh, verse 21. So that by the third year of Cyrus, the entire Jewish rebuilding and restoration movement has been brought to a standstill. And this is what's bothering Daniel in Daniel 10. He's thinking about the prophecy at the end of Daniel 9 and the reports that he's getting from the land that, that they're no longer able to work and everything's falling apart. And it, it's distressing him. And then he receives this, this message. And this message piles on the distress because the theme of the message is that the future of Israel is going to be bathed in bloodshed. It's going to be covered in violence. And the result of that is that it has an impact on them. And I think it's interesting to see how this impacts a mature believer because too often, I think, as, as church-age believers, we have a tendency to, to uh, be a little anti-emotional sometimes. And we also have a tendency to think that if you're, if you're in fellowship and walking with the Lord, and as we've studied in John chapter 15, abiding in Christ and the Holy Spirit is... Uh, is filling you that you're going to have the joy of Christ and there won't be any sense of sorrow or sadness. But as I pointed out, both when we studied that passage and uh, at other times, is that when uh, when believers are faced with real-life difficulty and pain, the loss of loved ones, uh, difficult situations in life, whether it's unemployment, uh, the breakup of a marriage, the death of a child, uh, whatever kind of problem it may be, we it's not wrong to be sad. It's not wrong to be sorrowful. It's not wrong to go through that mourning process. That is not something that is doubting the, the, the provision of God. Because, you see, even Jesus went through times of, of, uh, of, of mourning. He wept. He mourned over the people, not for Lazarus. He mourned when he looked at the crowds because he saw the impact that sin and death was having on their mental attitude. So at the time, though, he still had maximum joy. See, we want to juxtapose mourning and grief and, and legitimate sadness 
with joy. And what Scripture presents is the fact that you can have both at the same time. You can have stability and joy at the same time, have legitimate sorrow and sadness over circumstances and situations in life. We don't have to act like like um, we're untouched by what's going on around us. That's part of what it means to be compassionate. Uh, Daniel is mourning for three weeks. He is so overwhelmed by what he sees that he's he's devastated. He's not despairing. He's not depressed. He's mourning, though, because he sees the horrors that the nation is going to have to go through in the future, and he has a, and it has an emotional impact on him. It's not wrong to have an emotional impact. What's wrong is to let that emotion dictate wrong behavior and wrong mental attitude and give in to mental attitude sins such as anger and bitterness, resentment, hostility, things of that nature. So Daniel is mourning, and this mourning takes a particular form because he is going to turn to God in that morning, which is what should take place when we go through those times. It should drive us to dependence upon God. And he is going to uh, turn to God and seek for God's uh, provision. And so for three weeks, he goes through this morning process for 21 days. Now, this is a important time in the feast day of the, I mean, the, in the feast calendar of Israel. If we put together the, the passage, we'll discover that this 21-day period covers the first month of the feast calendar and goes to the 24th day. Now, remember, it is the 14th day of the first month. This is down in verse 4. It is the 14th day of the first month that is Passover. The day after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, and that lasts for a week. So that goes from the 15th to the to the 22nd, and then two days later, uh, Daniel ends his fast. So he is going to express his mourning by fasting. Now he he fasts. He says in verse three, "I did not eat any tasty food," and by that he he's really listing three things here. The punctuation is poor in the English. What it says in the Hebrew is, first of all, he did not eat any of the prime gourmet delicacies that were available to him uh, because of his high position in the uh, Persian court. So he says, I didn't eat any of the wonderful food that was available to me. And I not only that, I didn't eat any common food. I didn't eat any just bare necessities. I not only didn't eat any of the great food available to me, I didn't eat any food at all. I didn't eat any meat, and I didn't drink any wine. And the uh, the entire... Uh, structure here is to exclude any kind of eating that for this 21-day period he is on a fast. And he says, nor did I use any ointment at all. And this is an emphatic construction in the in the Hebrew to emphasize the fact that he didn't use any ointment. Now, the reason you would use ointment in the ancient world is just for daily uh, cosmetics. It would be comparable to the fact that he's saying, look, I didn't take a shower. I didn't put on any deodorant or aftershave. I didn't comb my hair. I was distraught. He's indicating the fact that that he is focused on something, and the details of life in terms of food and in terms of the, the daily structure of taking care of himself are just irrelevant to him. He's focusing on one thing, and that's studying doctrine and praying. 
And that was the purpose of fasting, not to impress God. Remember when Jesus told the Pharisees, see, they took stuff like this complete. Religion takes stuff like this out of context. Religion looks at this and says, oh, if I want to have a word from God, then I need to pray and I need to uh, not get a haircut and I need to not take a bath or put on deodorant. And if you show up at church like that, we'll run you out, let me tell you. But what he's talking about is, what they're talking about here is, is the fact that he's so focused on God, the details of life are, are not important, and what we'll see is that he left town. He doesn't do this in the context of his normal social life. He leaves town, so he's mostly off by himself. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees really distorted this so that by Jesus' time, they think this is a sign of super spirituality. And you run into people every now and then today who think so. And they'll go without food and they'll go without bathing and as some kind of a sign of super spirituality. But the Pharisees did, and Jesus said, when you're fasting, uh, still anoint yourself. So that nobody knows. Remember, if you're doing any of these things, it's between you and God. It's not, should not be done in a way to impress other people. And that's how religion had distorted this by the time of the first advent. So religion always looks on the superficial and tries to, uh, uh, and distorts this so that it becomes some kind of system for impressing God and impressing other people with our own, uh, spirituality. So Daniel says he didn't eat any food, any of the good food that was available to him, any meat, any wine. He didn't eat anything. Not only that, he didn't take a shower, didn't take a bath, didn't uh, uh, anoint his hair with oil. He didn't do anything like that for three weeks. And then in verse 4, he says, on the 24th day of the first month, that is two days after the end of the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, while I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, in the Hebrew it's Hekel, which is the a Hebrew name for the Tigris River, which is a good distance from Babylon. So obviously he's not at home. That's why I can say he left town. He's not uh, with his normal uh, social surroundings. He's not with other people. He has left town during this time of mourning. He is not going to impose his sorrow, his sadness, his emotional state on other people. That's just good manners. When you're distraught, when you're upset, don't run around telling everybody about it and don't impose yourself on other people. You probably have a good friend or two that you can share that grief with and spend that time with, but don't just run around emotionally out of control, uh, you know, putting yourself on everybody else. So Daniel left town, and he goes up to the Tigris River, and he says, On the 24th day of the first month, while I was the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure of pure gold of Uphaz. So he sees this individual while he is down by the river, and by this time he we know that he is with some friends. So he's finished his fasting. He may be uh, he has joined some other friends in, in some location. We don't know where it is down by the Tigris. And at this point, a man appears before him. In verse 6, we go on to get another description of this individual. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. 
Now, I want you to pay attention to the details of what Daniel sees in his description of this individual, and we'll compare it to another passage for a little surprise. You see, a lot of people look at this, and because up to this point there have been appearances of angels, at this point they want to think, because of the way things move through the passage, that this is Michael or Gabriel. But this is not a description of an angel. I want you to turn uh, if you want to, I'll put it up on the overhead, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. This is John's vision of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ while John is on the island of Patmos before he get, receives his revelation. The re, actually, the title of that book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 of Revelation 1, we read, Then I turned, I being John, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Notice the, the similarity with the man that appears to Daniel along the banks of the of the Tigris. The same type of clothing, the same appearance in the eyes, the same or similar description of the sound of the voice. So it doesn't take a whole lot to see the parallel between these two visions. So what we have in Daniel chapter 10 is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to the virgin incarnation I'm excuse me, the virgin conception and the virgin birth prior to the incarnation of Christ. So in Daniel 10, we have what is called a theophany. A theophany, I'll spell that on the overhead for you. Or up on the screen, it is, let me see, I don't have it up on the screen. Theophany, T-H-E-O for theos, for God, and P-H-A-N-O. Why, from phanos, meaning appearance, phanerao is the verb we've studied in 1 John 3 for manifestation or appearance. So this is an appearance of God. Now, in Daniel, throughout the book of Daniel, we've had various revelations and various appearances uh, to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, there is special revelation by means of a dream to a Gentile king. Daniel chapter 4, there's a vision given during the daytime to a Gentile king. In Daniel chapter 5, there's a public appearance of an angel's hand at the feast of Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall. Daniel 7, there is a dream uh, given uh, not to a Gentile king, but to Daniel himself. In Daniel 8, another vision given in the daytime to, to Daniel. Daniel 9, he has a direct encounter with the angel Gabriel who interprets a dream for him. And now in Daniel 10, we have an encounter with God the Son plus two other angels. So let's close this evening with a review of the doctrine of the, of the theophany. Doctrine of the theophany, point number one, a definition. A theophany is a manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate state. All of the appearances of God in the Old Testament are appearances of God the Son, not God the Father. 
and we'll see the scripture on that in just a minute. But that's a definition of a theophany. A Christophany is the appearance of Christ after his uh, ascension. After his ascension. For example, when Jesus appears to Paul on the Damascus Road, that is a Christophany. The appearance of Christ after after his ascension. So a theophany is, an, is a manifestation of the person of Christ in a pre-incarnate state, and a Christophany is a manifestation of Christ after the ascension. Point number two, Jesus Christ is the only visible member of the Trinity. This is clear from Scripture, that Jesus Christ is the only visible member of the Trinity. No other member of the Trinity manifests himself Visibly, this is based on two scriptures, John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. That would exclude Moses, that would exclude Abraham, that would exclude Adam. That would exclude everyone in the Old Testament who saw God. So the God, i.e. Yahweh, that they saw was really Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Again in John 6:46. Jesus said, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. That again indicates that Jesus is the only one who has seen the Father. No human being has ever seen the Father. So this is uh, clear from these direct statements in the New Testament. Third, the various theophanies in the Old Testament demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the God who appeared to the prophets in the Old Testament. For example, as a starting point, we should look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is a famous passage known as the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, based on the Hebrew cow imperative of the verb Shema, meaning to hear, or in the imperative, to listen. Hear, O Israel, is probably best translated, listen up. That's a little Texas slang there. Hear, O Israel, pay attention. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in a little better translation, Yahweh our God. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Now this word one is the Hebrew word echad. Echad. You can spell that in English, E-C-H-A-D. It looks like this in the Hebrew, Echad. Now, Echad is not the only word for one in Hebrew. It is the word for one in composite, as opposed to one in not, as opposed to a singular or unitary one. Let me give you an example. When God created man and woman, when they're joined together, they become one flesh. Echad, they're two components, but they're one flesh. When all all the twelve tribes of Israel appeared before God on Mount Sinai, they were said to be one nation, Echad. And yet there is another Hebrew uh, number for one that indicates a singularity, a non-compound one. So the word translated one here does not exclude a division in the Godhead. Furthermore, when it is used in this kind of a construction, it has the idea of unity, not the idea of singularity. 
just as in the statement that when a man and woman are joined together, they are one flesh, they are, the emphasis is on unity. The emphasis here is, here, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is a unity. Yahweh is a unity. So it is emphasizing the unity of the triune God, just another glimpse of the fact that the Trinity, while not overtly revealed in the Old Testament, is clearly referenced in the Old Testament. This is further substantiated by the appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. You have this one particular individual appear again and again who is described as the angel of the Lord. For example, he appears in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and warns the leadership of Israel. Again, in Judges 6, 11 to 24, he appears to Gideon, and Gideon worships the angel of Yahweh as Yahweh. No other angel accepts worship from man. All the, every other time a human being tries to uh, worship God, the angel stop him. But in Judges 6, this angel encourages it. In fact, Gideon directly calls the angel, calls the angel uh, Yahweh. In other passages in the Old Testament, for example, in uh, Zechariah uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 12 and 13, this uh, angel of the Lord is said to be carrying on a conversation with Yahweh himself so that you have a conversation between Yahweh and the angel of, the, of Yahweh and they are both referred to as God. In uh, Genesis 22:11 through 18 and in Genesis chapter 48 verses 15 through 16 you have the same kind of thing. You have the angel of the Lord appear but the angel of the Lord is also referred to as Yahweh. So the, dis- the fact is that in many passages the angel of the Lord is identified as God, and then in Zechariah 1, 12 through 13 and some other passages, uh, the angel of the Lord is distinct in personality from Yahweh as well. So that indicates multiple per- uh, personalities in the Godhead. The Theophanies ended, uh, point number four, the Theophanies ended with the incarnation of Jesus Christ at the first advent. Following his incarnation, there is a manifestation of Jesus Christ in his resurrection body, and that is referred to as a Christophany. So we come to Daniel, and Daniel has this uh, appearance, this man who appears to him, and when he hears the sound of his words, he falls into a deep sleep. This is in verse uh, 9. Daniel says in verse 7, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So he receives this vision that will be described in chapters 11 and 12, uh, during this particular time. Then in verse 8, he says, I was left alone and saw this great vision. Now, when he says he's left alone, that means not only that these men left, but this personage who is revealing this to him also leaves and is replaced by an angel. 
says, I was left alone, saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. Isn't it interesting, when there is a manifestation of Christ, that people, other than that to whom, the one to whom he is revealing himself, tend to run away. When uh, Paul is on the road to Damascus, and the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him, everybody else runs away. Uh, when God appears... Uh, those who are not the object of his appearance tend to run away terrified because they are confronted with the uh, integrity and the righteousness and the holiness of God. Verse 9 we read, But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then in verse 10, things are going to change. He falls into, you get the picture, he falls into the trance. He, he, he is going to uh, get this revelation. And then at the conclusion of receiving the vision, a hand shakes him, physically, violently shakes him awake. And this is a different individual. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So there's a shift between the first man who appears to him back in verse 5 and this individual. One of the reasons we say that is the description in verse 5 is so clearly that of, uh, of the same description of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. But this individual as an angel has to do battle with the, a demon called the Prince of the Kingdom of Persia. So next time when we get back, we're going to get into some important angelology and demonology to understand a little bit or get a glimpse. We can't go too far. We're not going to push it like some people do. But we recognize here we get a little bit of, of, of God peels back the envelope a little bit so that we can see and get a glimpse of how the angelic conflict and the war in the heavenlies impacts the geopolitical strategy on planet Earth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded once again that you control history, and that even from uh, the creation of man, you have had a plan for our salvation, that Jesus Christ uh, was continuously appearing and revealing himself in the Old Testament as a precursor to his incarnation and his ultimate work of salvation on the cross. And there he paid the penalty for all of our sins, that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we could have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied, that they would encourage us because we know that Jesus Christ controls history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.